two of the People Show. Vic Mazar, Israel Fair, coming to you live from the Kintech studio, Kintech Footwear and Orthotics, Canada's favorite orthotics provider, supported by over 2,500 five-star Google reviews. Find your perfect fit at Kintech.net. You want to be part of the show? Interact with us, 650-650, into the Dunbar Lumber text message inbox. Dunbar Lumber with three stores to serve you in Ladner on Bridge Street, Dunbar Lumber Express at Ladner Center, or Arbutus in Vancouver online at DunbarLumber.com. Before we get into the full previews of the NHL season, we get to discuss prospects. They're the ones that get to show up first, get to see all the progress that's been made by prospects. Uh, and uh, this time of year over at The Athletic, the pipeline rankings come out and the top, uh, or sorry, the bottom 16 have been unveiled in order, Boston, Tampa, Islanders, Pittsburgh, Edmonton, Toronto, Vegas, Colorado, Vancouver unveiled today, Florida, Washington, Calgary, L.A., Winnipeg, St. Louis, and Dallas. Interesting to see L.A. in there because they've had so much success, obviously, uh, accumulating all these guys. Uh, we'll get into that with Corey here, just talking about the uh, bottom 16. But let's start with uh, Vancouver with Corey Pronman, who joins us now from The Athletic. Corey, how are you? I'm doing well. Thank you for having me, guys. Absolutely. Always looking forward to uh, your series here with the Prospect Pipelines and uh, coming in at 24. Uh, not unexpected in the least uh, with Vancouver, but when you look at this group, we were talking about it earlier today, um, how, how much of this group is kind of defined by uh, Atu Ratu? Because he's sitting there, you know, 20 years old, a, a pivotal piece uh, as a center, obviously. There, there's there's growth that needs to happen, of course, but the growth of the overall prospect pool for the Canucks, it feels like a lot hinges on what Ratu can do. Well, I think it's Ratu, it's Lekaramaki, and, and Will Lander. Like, those are the three important guys not in the NHL right now. And then it's really what happens with Vasily Pitkolzin going forward, too, right? I mean, he, in the last year or two in the NHL hasn't really gone as planned for him. If, if he can rebound, I think it changes the future trajectory of that lineup in a significant way. If he just becomes a nice you know, third-line winger, then I think you are looking to guys like Ratu and Lekaramaki to step up and become significant scorers in this lineup. The issue with Ratu has been the skating, and it, it's amplified if he's going to play center. At this point in his development arc, he's still relatively young, but he's obviously not a yep. freshly drafted player. What's a, what's a realistic expectation in terms of improvement? In terms of his skating or in terms of yeah, his he skating. Is a player right now? Well, I think his skating, I don't think, I think usually my line of thinking is if a guy's not a good skater when he's 17, he's probably not going to be a good skater when he's 23. That's, there's like, there's the outliers and the ones who get talked about, like Brayden Point, for example. But, but typically, in my experience, those are the guys who, that, that tends to be the, the common trend. So I think if Ratu skating doesn't improve, I still think you have a 6-1-6-2 center who is skilled and intelligent, who competes well enough, and I think has a strong enough track record to where I think you're, you're hoping he could still be a third-line center in the NHL. He's on the wing. Maybe he's a second-line wing. But I think that's what's realistic, in my opinion. So the Canucks coming at 24th, and, and, and just the group as a whole for you. Now, in, in years previous, I know you know Pedersen and Hughes have been part of this exercise, and it feels like a little bit divorced because it's hard to look at them as prospects because they're pro playing at the highest level. It, when you look at like the the out of the NHL group for the Canucks, is this progress for them? Uh, in some ways, I mean, yeah, because I think obviously I really like Tom Willander, so mm -hmm. you, you get to add him in the draft, and, and that's a great player. I like Rat too, so you add him uh, in the Bull Horvat trade. Although I don't know if he's ever, you know, Bull Horvat's a great player, so it's 
it's tough to say Ratu's ever going to replace Horvat. It's the profit pool is getting a little bit better. I think the issue with the Canucks is going to be like, yeah, these are good players, but I don't know if any of them. Maybe Will Lander has a chance if he keeps developing the way he's been developing over the last 12 months, but I don't know if any of these guys are really true top-tier high-end prospects, uh, and that's kind of what you really need to kind of turn the corners of an organization, given that they're, you know, the Cooks are a middle-of-the-pack team right now. I think I do like their roster. I think they are a good team. I think if they get, you know, if Demko bounces back a little bit next year, has a year that's more resemblant of what we think of Demko, and, you know, you could argue maybe the team defense needs to be a little bit better around him too. But, like, I do think this is a good team. They don't need a ton of prospects coming up to become a playoff team. But I do wonder if, given where the roster is now, if there's enough premium talent in this farm system to help them really become, never mind a playoff team, but a contender. You mentioned that you like Willander. He is number one on your list. Uh, and the Canucks fans have been pining for another top four D-man, who knows, maybe even a top pair D-man to come into the system and then come eventually into the NHL team and, and play with Quinn Hughes. Uh, having just been drafted, what do you want to see from Willander this season? What would make a, a good season for him uh, to continue his well, development? He, he's going to have a very unique development trajectory. and You don't see many... Swedes, never mind first round Swedes, come over the year after their draft and go play college hockey. And BU has a lot of expectations going into this season. You know, they're they're trying to contend for a hockey East title, try to contend in the NCAA's. So he's going to be asked to play big minutes right away, and there will and they will need him to be really good in order to have the success they hope uh, to have. So you know, whether he hits the ground running in, in hockey East and has a very good year there, whether BU has success. Uh, will be, you know, the measuring stick for his year. I mean, he should go to the World Juniors and play a big role as well. So, you know, we'll see how he does between those two different levels of play. But I, you know, when you pick a guy that high, 11th overall, you're expecting him to be a really good player at every level he plays at. So, I mean, if he's not one of the better freshmen in Hockey East next season, uh, that would be quite surprising. What always struck me as fascinating with uh, uh, with Willander was, you know, puck on his stick, we can – find the ceiling of what his his offensive limitations are with with goal creation whether it's assists or him scoring on his own but does his skating open up other opportunities that the production could be there that wouldn't otherwise be there for a player with his offensive skill set yeah and i think the offense is good enough i don't think it's ever going to be high high end mm-hmm. but i think it's i think it's good like i you watched him towards the end of the year both with Rogel at the junior level and then with Sweden's under-18 team, like he can, he was showing he can, you know, make some plays in the power play. Like you know, guys like that who have good enough skill in hockey sense, they're not going to be, you know, finding making scene passes all over the ice and making super creative, uh, you know, one-on-one plays. But he moves the puck to the right spots. He makes a good outlet pass. He can play big minutes and and keep the play going in the right direction. So I don't have issues with his offense. When I think of him, I thought of guys in the NHL like Brady Shea, like. Mike Matheson, like maybe like Jacob Chikrit. I don't think any of those guys at that age I thought were elite brain types or elite skill types, but they had they were really good skaters with good enough offense, and they became very good top four defensemen over the course of their careers. You've got uh, Lekaramaki uh, third on the Canucks ranking with notes that the shot's above average for an NHL player. The puck skills are above average, but there is this conversation about the compete and getting the most out of that package. Bick and I opened the show with the idea that the players that have top-tier shots are going to get a lot more chances. Teams are going to be remain interested in those players and trying to see them fulfill their potential. 
where is that line for you with when a player has an obvious skill uh, and that skill is goal scoring or creating goals where you need to see the other part of the game kind of rise to that level before you you sort of give up on that kind of player? I think one player who kind of had similar strengths and weaknesses was a guy like Ely Tolvanen, for example, who was a late first by Nashville. And he had his ups and downs and the times where you were wowed by his offensive abilities and times where you're really frustrated uh, by his play away from the puck. And it's just so, so skating, especially, which I don't think Lekromakis is an issue. Um, and then Tolvanen took quite a bit of time and Nashville actually you know, kind of gave up on him towards the end, and then he found success in Seattle when they got him to be more consistent with his effort. I think anytime you have that kind of high-end skill and goal-scoring ability, people will want to try you out because you, cause you change a power play. There aren't many guys, especially at the NHL level, who could run a flank, uh, you know, successfully. And I think Lecker and Mackey has the tools to do that. Uh, and But you need him definitely to be more consistent off the puck and just in general, you know, his first half, his first half, sorry, in the Outsenskin last season didn't go as planned. He was much better towards the end of the year. Uh, it, but it's tough, I think, to, you know, especially when a guy is that side and he can lack comp- compete uh, some nights, it, it's tough to go to bat to this guy and say he's going to really impact an NHL lineup. But uh, I'm not ready to give up on Lecker and Mackey just yet, just because he still has such a really good track record and he's still only 18. I think you want to give him another year or two before you start getting worried about that becoming a major issue at the pro level. That that one trait, like that shot that you mentioned that that can be on a flank on a power play and and you know change the dynamics of what a penalty kill does to uh, defend you. That one trait, like I, I look at someone like Nils Hoaglander who just feels like he lacks that one natural trait. Yeah, the puck skills are there, but it's it's not quite as um visceral and 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 dynamic as having the shot right you can defend puck skills especially when you don't have the speed to pull away from guys and and you put Nils Hoaglander seventh which you know raises a lot of eyebrows because there's a lot of people that are very high on Nils Hoaglander even at the pro level you know having seen him what he did in the rookie season he's played 140 games and there are there are underlying numbers that suggest he's going to be a good pro but like I always look for the 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 one physical trait for Nils Hoaglander that just doesn't feel like that exists outside of something like what we were just talking about with Lekaramaki. Yeah, and further the point on Lekaramaki, like I think of Victor Olofsson, who is not the most physical player in the right. world. Good, not great skaters, 5'11", but he can rip a puck. And if like that, and he's found his way to have an NHL career as a seventh-round pick because of that one trait. Hoaglander is a tough one because I have been high on him before, and I've and the skill is just outstanding. So it makes you kind of and you know when he was scoring in the in Sweden, you know it was really enticing. But the skating, especially at that size, was always really concerning. I think we I thought he could overcome it because he's competitive. He's got a little bit of a physical edge in him. So you're like, oh, okay, he's not a great skater, but but he has this, this little bite in him, and he's scoring, and he's so skilled, so maybe he'll overcome it. And he still might. He was still you know, good at, in the American League when they sent him down in the second half of the year. But I think given how the last 12 months went for him, it's at least a little concerning going into next season about what is he actually going to be at the NHL level, especially as they do add more wingers and forwards into you know both of their, in the – uh, in the system, especially on the roster, it's like where does Hoaglander really fit? I don't think he's a fourth line forward, mm-hmm. and he needs. And when you're that side, I don't care how hard you work, you need a score to be a top nine forward. And I think he still has to prove that. 
Hoaglander and Pud Colson are the two guys on the list that Canucks fans have seen the most uh, because they've played the most at the NHL level. There have been flashes, but there's been that inconsistency. And then last year, there was a fair bit of time for both of them in the American Hockey League. Um, how much of that is just prospects fluctuating development and how much of it can be on the way that the Canucks have used those guys, you know, putting them in the NHL quite early, maybe not in the right roles and, and, and so on. Yeah, you can argue whether they were in there too early or not, but I think the fact that neither of them are great skaters was always a concern in terms of how their games were going to translate to the NHL. I think the Colson is a lot bigger. So you're still hoping that even if he doesn't score, you know, with that with being, you know, a competitive player with enough size that you can kind of carve out a bottom stick role for him, even if he doesn't hit as a scorer. Um, but both of their skating, even if you argue they were in there too early, were always a, a concern for me and for several scouts I've talked to in terms of how the game was going to translate, whether it was at 20 or 25. Talking to Corey Prodman from The Athletic, prospect analyst, uh, talking about his prospect pipelines. I, I want to talk about some other teams that came up today. Um, the LA Kings uh, coming in at 20th on your list. Now, they have been regarded as like the team uh, to accumulate assets, and they've done such a great job. So many players. And, and just to highlight some of the players on the list this year, it's Quinton Byfield, Brant Clark, Arthur Kaliev, Jordan Spence, and Tobias Bornfot is your top five there for LA. They've always been looked at as like, hey, this is the prospect pipeline that, that that's so flush. And for me, it hasn't really translated to actual pro-level uh, production just yet from that entire group. Like the, the best one you could say is Kupari, and he's now in Winnipeg. Or, or, or Kaliev, maybe. Yeah, or Kaliev. But even that, it's like, okay, we're talking about like a, a middle six kind of scorer. Yeah. What yeah. like Velarde had a nice year, but then they traded him. Yeah, like in your mind, like what has been the struggle for for LA, and and why do they come in at twentieth on your list? Well, you know, I think that's part of you know how the the issue at times with trying to accumulate prospects and why you need so many picks is the the hit rate is not always what you kind of think it's going to be, mm -hmm. and you can get all the picks in the world you want. Uh, but a lot of those guys are not going to live up to what you hope them to be. I mean, and it's part that's part of that part is they haven't had a first round pick in two straight years. So that contributes to the ranking being a little lower. They traded. They had two high second season in twenty and Helge Grons, Brock Faber. Faber especially has developed really well. But they trade both of those guys, Faber and the Kevin Fiala trade. Um, another a big contributing factor was Alex Turcotte just simply not performing at the level that they would hope he would perform when they picked him fifth overall. You know, he's been an, an average American league forward over the last two years and uh, he still has a chance to make it, but that chance, the chances have been dwindling year over year. Uh, so I think all those forces combined lead to the fact that the system may not be as highly ranked as we hope. I mean, Byfield, you know, I still love Quinton Byfield. I think he's going to be a very good NHL player for a long time, but if you redid that 2020 draft, I can't, I guarantee you that he's going top five. Like I think there would be, you know, there would be conversations with him and numerous others. So I think all those factors combined to the fact that the system, I still think there's good players. And I think LA actually really like how LA has built their team and, and they have enough young players who have hit like Kaliev and like Byfield. And I think Clark will hit that. I think they can still build a really good hockey team, but it's fair to say the the young player aspect of their team has not gone as you would have thought it would two, three, four years ago. Sticking with the Kings and, and Byfield and Clark, uh, those are those are names, those are prospects, you know, Byfield in particular, that the average hockey fan would know. 
from the 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 seven or I guess it's the sixteen teams that you've got on the rankings here. So the 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 bottom half of the teams in your ranking are those guys pretty close to the top in terms of the the better prospects that are that their their teams have already been listed, or is there someone else from Dallas through Boston that you think is you know the most elite player that that's been on the, this part of the list? I think I think in terms of God, I think Byfield's pretty high up there. I would have Wyatt Johnston from Dallas ahead of Byfield. Um, that's that that would be one. Uh, I, but otherwise, I do think and and Lundell from Florida. But other uh, that those are two, and then Byron from Colorado. But otherwise, I think Byfield's the third, I think he's the third or fourth highest player among the bottom sixteen teams so so far. And that's, I still think really highly of this player. I think there's a question of whether he's for sure going to be a center or a top line center, anyways, in the NHL, or if he's a top line guy, is he a top line wing like he was this past year for LA? But I still think he's an excellent hockey player. We were talking yesterday about the first eight that you unveiled. And look, there's some expected uh, suspects in this group because they've achieved so much. Colorado, Vegas, uh, Tampa have all won championships, right? And and, and you're drafting late and you're using assets. You're not going to be that high. This next group that's come out, Dallas, St. Louis, Winnipeg, L.A., Calgary, Washington, Florida, and Vancouver – do you look at this like one of those teams and say like you haven't achieved and you're in this level of the rankings? I'm a little concerned what the future looks like. I mean, everyone's in different stages of the rebuild. Like, yeah. St. Louis is just straight out rebuilding right now, and I think LA. The questions for someone like LA will come in the next year or two in, in that regard. I think Calgary is a minor concern, depending on what happens with their free agents over the over the next year. You know, if they can if they keep. Lindholm, if they keep Hannafin, it's different. But if they lose those guys and they don't really have a, like they have good prospects, they don't have any, you know great prospects, then I think you're more concerned. Whereas you know Florida, you know I think and Dallas, I think you like where those teams are right now. Uh, and then Washington is kind of similarly situated to Pittsburgh, where they got a really old team, and I'm not sure what the path forward is um, for, to go back to winning Stanley Cups. But uh, but we'll see what that what their plan is over the coming years. Hey, Corey, it's uh, great work. We always appreciate when you give us your time, and uh, it's a fantastic read over at The Athletic today. Vancouver Canucks uh, coming in at 24th on your prospect pipeline rankings. Uh, appreciate the time. Yep, sure thing. Thanks, it's Corey. Corey Pronman from The Athletic NHL. Bick Nazar and Israel Fair, also from The Athletic NHL coverage, senior editor. Uh, I want to get into a couple other things, though. 650, 650, you can always chime in. I uh, hope you enjoyed that conversation with Corey. We, we, we spent some time yesterday talking about the uh, Seattle Mariners and, and how great Julio is. And a lot of people were texting in like, hey, Julio's not in the lineup later tonight, which you heard on Sportsnet 650. That was yesterday. Yeah, you know what? Didn't matter. Just didn't matter. <laughs> Ho-hum. Uh, the Seattle Mariners crushing yesterday 14-2. to Now, it helps when uh, Castillo uh, on the mound and yep. big dumper Cal Raleigh uh, out there, but... Man, they're they're on a roll, and then pair it with uh, the Diamondbacks winning an extras. Yes, comeback with, uh, against the Rangers. We we talked was like, hey, end of season, they're gonna have the the Rangers, they're gonna have the Astros, and the Rangers again. They can close that gap down. That gap is shrinking daily right now because the Rangers have lost five in a row, and the Mariners have won, won seven in a row. Yeah, it was looking good in Houston. The Red Sox went up. 3 nothing yeah. early at uh, BC's James Paxton couldn't uh, shut the door on the Astros. So they, they end up winning uh, to keep 
you know, just that half game, I guess, on the Mariners. But uh, yeah, what what they're two games back all of a sudden in the the division race is is there. Yeah, and and, and suddenly all these conversations about the Mariners and and the Jays are just foolish that we had ten days ago of. Hey, what's the wild card race going to look like? Now, one of these teams is going to filter into that wild card, obviously, because only one team can win that division. But yeah. as far as aspirations, if you're the Astros, if you're the Mariners, you're looking at Texas rather than you're looking at Tampa Bay. And what this AL West race is going to look like down the stretch here, the Mariners are going to be super exciting. I know we're talking about, hey, they are a streaky team. The benefit, though, of doing it now is you're meant to streak at the right time. Mm-hmm. Like, Teams aren't going to be like I, I know everyone values consistency and everything like that, but you value consistency at like an eight out of ten. You want to be an eight out of ten, eight out of ten, eight out of ten. But at some point, you know you got to get to a ten out of ten. At some point, everything has to start firing, and when it matters, and when you get to the end of the season and you get into the playoffs, you want to be hitting your peak performance. The Mariners have done this five out of ten, four out of ten, ten out of ten run and yeah that's frustrating that's annoying but man if you're hitting the stride at the right time it suddenly becomes a really scary team yeah well they're streaky offensively yeah like you said castillo goes out there and he had a stretch or i think he retired 15 straight ends up with nine strikeouts they needed yeah some length from castillo because they essentially had a bullpen game on sunday where the relievers had to pitch seven innings so they 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 were down some guys that they they certainly didn't want to go to Castillo gave them that length. The offense is popping. It's not just Julio, though he's obviously the headliner. They've they've put themselves in this spot here because they've got they've got legit offensive talent. Now it's streaky, but they've got some power and they've got a little bit of that sort of especially this year with the with the new rules and how steals are up. Mm-hmm. They're playing a little bit more of modern baseball now. Kyle Raleigh's not going to be stealing any bases. Eugenio Suarez isn't going to be stealing any bases. But the, some of the guys lower in the lineup, Dylan Moore, Jose Caballero can steal bases. We know Julio can steal bases. So they they have a little bit more balance that way as well, where um, they're they're exploiting that right now. And it it's looking pretty good. And I believe that there was a lot made of the Paul Sewell trade and give up their closer, and then they had some some games go against them late late in games and then even some of the games that they won that were close Brash and Munoz in particular didn't have three up three down innings there was a little bit more turmoil there but they got some useful pieces back right they got Canzone they got Rojas those guys are are useful players right now they traded a, a good closer for a couple of guys who are contributing not at the high end of the roster, but filling out the roster, which is an issue that they had at the beginning of the season. They did not; they were they were getting almost nothing from the bottom of their order when they started the season. Tommy Listella and they had AJ Pollock out there. They've added some guys who I'm not saying they're going to be future all stars. I'm not mm-hmm. saying they're going to change the trajectory of the franchise, but the way that they're playing right now, they're making an impact. If you had to kind of power rank the AL right now. Where are the Mariners coming in? They're pretty high. Like they're they're probably right behind Baltimore. I I feel better about them than I do the Blue Jays. Well, we'll get into the Jays on the other side here because I know you want to say something about the Jays. Uh, but we'll get into that in just a minute. But if 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 you're saying Baltimore, class of the AL, 
at this point, yeah, they've earned it. That's high praise. And Texas, yeah. before this streak, you know, they were right there. Tampa? I mean, Tampa just had such an amazing start, mm-hmm. but their pitching is now is so thin. And they had Shane McClanahan, an ace-type guy, at the top of the rotation. That while they do some unorthodox things and they'll have bullpen games and the opener, they at least had him to fall back on. He's out for the season. He's probably even out for all of next season. Mm-hmm. That's a huge blow. The Mariners have, I said this yesterday, the Mariners have three guys in Castillo, Kirby, and Gilbert that you feel very comfortable going into a short series with. And then they've got these young explosive explosive arms like Miller and Wu that can provide length. And I think especially you see this a lot in, in the baseball postseason. Those starters, young starters that you know long-term you'd like to be starters, but you can deploy them in like two or three innings. And these are guys that if they if they are going all out, they can really light up the gun. They, you know, maybe as a starter, they're throwing 95, 96. Wu and Miller, I don't think, would have any problem in a two, three-inning stint getting close to 100. And then now all of a sudden, you feel better about your rotation there. And that, that, that's where it starts. And if they're rolling like this, and look, like Tampa's is pretty streaky offensively as well. Texas, a big part of their success was built off of an offense. And sometimes that comes and goes, and they're, they're in a losing skid right now. You have to feel pretty good about where the Mariners are at. I know you want to talk about the uh, Toronto Blue Jays on the other side. Complaints that you're uh, not buying uh, of what the Blue Jays season has been, especially now that you've seen the Mariners streak. It's an interesting conversation here in the city. As we are talking yesterday, if you missed on the pod, uh, especially our conversation with Don Taylor as well. You're talking about, hey, Blue Jays town, Mariners town, what is it? Uh, But uh, those rivalries are going to spark, especially as both teams are competing at the chase of the end of the MLB season. Uh, More on the way, Bik Nazar, Israel Fair. We've got the power ranks for the NFL coming up at the top of the hour as well. All coming up here on The People Show, Sportsnet 650. On the People's Show. Coming to you live from the Kintech studio, Bik Nazar, Israel Fair. People Show brought to you by Avenue Machinery and Douglas Lake Equipment. Be a champion on the worksite. Find them together at DLEAMC.com. We will make way at 4 o'clock today. We uh, gave way to the Mariners yesterday at 5 o'clock. Blue Jays and Orioles today uh reconvening after a set uh in toronto not too recently a couple of weeks ago but a chance to rebound for the jays after a a bad series versus the orioles where they dropped three of four and i I said to you because i think we spoke to you the week uh, or the the day after the series yes that's right um I, i said not that the jays played scared but there was a level of self assuredness watching the orioles that like they just looked very confident in everything that they were doing and to see it in direct contrast of a team trying to evolve, trying to learn itself. It was just, 
it was a very interesting dichotomy to see how the Orioles were having success and how the Jays were kind of in this spot. And they were in that stretch where they just weren't converting runners, which has been there, obviously, a, a big issue throughout the season. But in particular, there was a really bad stretch before they mini break out there. But now to see this series come back about tonight, uh, which, you, again, you hear on Sportsnet 650 in about 90 minutes, interesting to see uh, what's going to happen uh, for the Jays tonight. But... Uh, you and I were talking before the show. Uh, you've seen this uh, trend, this narrative start coming out about the Jays' season, and you have a solution to the problems, or at least <laughs> at least an answer to the problem. An explanation, yeah. So this Blue Jays' season has been an interesting one to track mm-hmm. because they come in with expectations. They've got this young core. They make a couple of pretty sizable changes to their lineup. They sure. trade Teoscar Hernandez. They trade Lourdes Gurriel. They bring in Dal- Dalton Varsho. They sign Kevin Kiermeyer. They sign Brandon Belt as, as a veteran player to sort of supplement their lineup. And they've struggled with runners in scoring position, which is definitely the number one thing that frustrates. Maybe a leaky bullpen. Mm-hmm. It's either a leaky bullpen or not sure. cashing in runners in scoring position. But what I'm seeing this now, and it's just, this is really flaring up, I think, because of the success that the Mariners have had the last couple weeks here. Blue Jays fans are feeling sorry for themselves. And there are some that are just angry and upset yeah. and feel like, hey, the team should be better. And I wonder how much of that is like residual effect of the last four years. It's got to be. It's yeah. got to be part of it. And there is there is this feeling that this group is now sort of underachieving. Mm-hmm. This was supposed to be the next team, and they haven't won a playoff series. So the idea is, you know, it's <laughs> similar to the Toronto Maple Leafs. Sure. Where you come in, you have all these expectations. you you got to at least start winning in the playoffs. This is very easy for us to sit here. I look at that Chicago Cubs team that broke this, the curse, mm-hmm. that, that won the World Series in 2016. And now you look back, and they never really had that kind of success again. Most of their star players are still in the league, but are, are, are no longer major impact players, right? Chris Bryant ends up in, in Colorado. Anthony Rizzo is with the Yankees, and he went through a particularly bad stretch earlier this year. Javi Baez signed a huge contract with the Tigers, hasn't been good. But at least that team won the World Series the year before. They made the championship series. The Blue Jays fans are now, they, they were, they've put their fans in a position to be frustrated. And they're the, what I've seen is the fans are doing what I think any fan would do. They're looking for the explanations. They're looking for yeah. answers. And they're particularly frustrated because they look at the team that's leading the division in Baltimore. And they're trying to figure out what's the difference between themselves and the Orioles. And they look at the stats and they pull up the pitching stats. And they go, well, our rotation numbers are better. Our starters are better. And our bullpen is pretty similar. So let's call that a wash. And then defensively, Blue Jays fans have been pretty happy with the defense that they've gotten. At least one's allowed in the American League. They've right? been they've been a better defensive team. Yeah. There's no doubt. But then this is the it goes back to the runners in scoring position. And the Blue Jays have been very close to the bottom in terms of cashing in runners. And the Orioles are very high in terms of cashing in runners. And we saw that during that series that you mentioned, Bick, the, the recent series between Baltimore in Toronto that was played at at Rogers Center. That is a very easy complaint for fans to make. Hey, it's uh, because I'm of the belief that 
over a, log, a large sample size, converting runners in scoring position is pretty random. Mm-hmm. There's, it's not a skill, so to speak. I've, I've always looked at it as like third down percentage in the NFL, where unless like you're hugely important, I, I, no, it, it is. But like, unless you're Peyton Manning or Tom Brady, historically, right. teams have fluctuated yes. their percentages a lot. Like the Seahawks had success. Yeah. Russell Wilson, when he was young, would rush for some third downs and scramble. And then as the age started to catch up, there's this cheat code that you didn't have as often. And he struggled to make completions. And suddenly that started to flip. Historically, unless you're like the elite of the elite, things flip really easily. And that what brings me to this point. And this is the major point. The stat that I will say defines the Blue Jays season. We can sit here and say that the Blue Jays have been unlucky. That there's not much. We could also sit here and have a long conversation about approaches at the plate. And sure. are they looking for the right pitches yes. and stuff like that. But let's just let's accept the premise that they've been unlucky. man. People want one answer. Let's accept the premise that they've been unlucky. People want the solution in a headline. Well, this is it. Okay. And the Orioles have been lucky. Yeah. Okay? Here's the other stat. The Blue Jays and the Orioles have both hit 145 home runs this year. That puts them tied for 15th. So they're right in the middle of the league. Mm -hmm. 30-team league, they're 15th. They're the 15th team, the 16th team. They are right in the middle. Two years ago, the Blue Jays led the major leagues in home runs. 262. Last year, they weren't quite as prolific. They hit 200. That put them seventh. But their offensive numbers overall were still higher than this year. But this year, they have taken a step back in terms of hitting home runs. And to me, no one's complaining about the runners in scoring position numbers. Right. If their home run numbers are, are, are elite, you mitigate, you solve your own problem. And they have traded to some degree. And they did so willingly Mm -hmm. because they felt like, hey, we need to get some better defense into this lineup. They traded some of those home runs. You know who's been hitting home runs for the Mariners the last couple weeks? They Oscar Hernandez. He's a streaky player. He's not necessarily the most reliable outfielder. But when he's hot, he can be a 30 home run bat. And the Blue Jays took something that was a strength. And now it's just average. And yes, they're good defensively. And their rotation's been really strong. They've got bounce-back years from Jose Barrios and Yusei mm-hmm. Kikuchi. But if you're going to look for the difference between Baltimore and Toronto, the difference is that Baltimore has been, and they, they only need to be an average power-hitting team. Right. Because they've got a great bullpen. According to some metrics, they've got a pretty strong defensive team as well. And the Blue Jays were a team that could they, they could outperform the runners in scoring position because they hit for power. A couple of weeks ago, Don Mattingly on, on the Jays coaching staff said, we're not built to hit home runs anymore. To me, that was a major red flag. That's what your team is built on. We can, we can talk about, well, Vlad Guerrero needs to be better. George Springer needs to be healthy and better. But, you know, you look at, you look at the changes on this team and you looked at when they were at their peak. They were a home run hitting team. And there are issues with that, too, because so, home uh, runs come and go. But here, that was the strength of the Blue Jays. Here's what I was going to say. You mentioned the, the transactions that happened this summer, right? And even if you want to go back to you know Chapman, Kermeyer come in, Varsho comes in, and you mentioned like Teoscar goes out. 
there was a, a look like some of it is we'll take a downgrade in bat, but we're going to make an improvement defensively. And you mentioned there that when they were at their peak, they were hitting home runs. It didn't translate into series wins, right? I can understand the fear of, hey, this isn't necessarily what it's looked like when we saw them at their peak, but it didn't even then translate to wins. If there's a shift in identity, even as you know, right. Mattingly yeah. is admitting, you have to live in the fear till you get to October. Does playing this way yeah. lend itself to actually having success in October? Now, you have to get there. Yes. That's the thing. And I think this next six-week stretch is going to be terrifying for a lot of people. But a lot of the markers that you just say, I, I think about in my head, and I think, hey, I want some of this stuff to translate into October. Yes. And that's the fear. It's like your, your payoff may not come on August 14th in a game against Texas or something like that. Your payoff is meant to come in October. Sure. I think that's a very that, – that you're presenting a very strong counter-argument. But when you're looking at these standings, you've got to get in. And right now, they're not in. Yeah. And yeah, it'll be it'll be nervy. And now that there is a a real fight now for the AL West with Seattle, Houston, and Texas, like those games at the end of September between those three teams, Seattle plays Texas twice, two series mm-hmm. with Texas, a series with Houston, those games are going to matter, not just for wildcard positioning, but potentially for the division. And the Blue Jays are in their own situation here where they're, you would think just based on the records, Baltimore is the best team in the American League at this point, record-wise, and Tampa's second. So it's not like the Blue Jays, unless they go on a big run here, will be playing for the division. They have taken that, you know, destinies out of their hands in, in a lot of ways, outside of just winning the games that they can play. But it's not like they're, they're going to be pushing Baltimore or Tampa for the division. I think that's a factor. And it, it is it is a fascinating conversation. I know it's one that we have a lot about the Canucks mm-hmm. and, and hockey in general, the difference between having a successful regular season team and having a team that can compete in the playoffs. The idea, I think, in the playoffs, it starts with pitching. You want guys that can miss bats. You want elite starting pitching. Blue Jays fans have seen it, where in 15 and 16, and 15 in, in particular, great offensive team. And ultimately, they lose to a Kansas City team. This is me just jabbing Blue Jays fans even more. <laughs> a Kansas City team that was pretty similar to this Baltimore team. Right. Exceptional back end of the bullpen. Young team that was able to get things done in the clutch. And I'm sure for the Blue Jays fans who are statistically inclined... That hurts even more when the team that you're losing to gets things done in the clutch because you probably don't believe that to be his skill. So it, it hurts even more so. But yeah, I, I I believe that the Blue Jays traded their strength here. And they're still a good team. There's no doubt about it. But they're not getting away with maybe some of the things that they would have when that was... It wasn't just, hey, they're good at this. They are the best in the league. At, at this and it's they don't have it anymore okay so let's talk about the wild card here because i think at this stage is it safe to say two teams from the al west are going to be in the wild card no matter what yeah okay so because well, you're only getting you're, you're getting no other team from the central yes right at, at this point it's unlikely to be anybody but minnesota yes i suppose cleveland could get 
super hot, but that seems unlikely. Yeah. So you take them out, and then there's three spots left between the West and the East. Okay, so you mentioned Tampa Bay earlier. Host of issues there, obviously. They're a few games back of Tampa Bay. Is that the team you look at to try to track down? Because it's Houston, Seattle uh, are, are, are going to be there with, with Texas. Do you try to track down Tampa Bay? Is that the important one to try to track track down? Yeah, but it's it's a climb already at this point, right? Mm-hmm. Like you have to basically for the rest of the season get one or two wins a week more than them. But okay, and the reason I bring this up is they're going to go do this Baltimore series, which again you'll hear on Sportsnet 650 uh, starting tonight at four o'clock. Kikuchi is uh, pitching at Baltimore tonight. They'll get through this series three games set. They have 15 games coming up here. Cleveland, Washington, Colorado, Oakland, and KC. How many do they actually realistically have to get? I feel like we've done this this exercise with the Canucks where it's like, hey, if they can like go... 12? Like, bare minimum, right? Yeah. Bare minimum. And it, it's getting crunch time. Like, there's, there's been this spot where you look at it, It's like they have to get hot at some point. Similar to what the Mariners have done these past 20 games. There's a 15-game stretch here where you're not playing very good teams. And you better cash in uh, some some W's real fast here because back into the season, like it's it's you you do have six games against Tampa Bay late, so maybe that's where you can make it up. But you better be in a spot where you're like two games back of Tampa by the time those series come around. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And I mean, just just you can even just you ignore the fancy stats, like you said, Bick. The Jays' uh, fewest runs allowed. They're under 500 for the point in the season. They've scored 100 runs, 100 fewer runs than Tampa. They've scored 50 fewer runs than Baltimore. The Mariners have scored more runs than them. Houston's scored a lot more runs than them. Texas has scored almost 150 more runs than them. It all comes down to home runs for you. That's their strength. That was their number one strength. And to me, we saw this flip. And uh, when I was hosting the morning show with Jamie Daw, we talked to Shai Davidi, and he's covered the Blue Jays basically for the last 20 years. And I asked him what this, if this was the most frustrating Blue Jays team that he had covered in terms of the way that fans feel about it. And he said yes. And then he said that this reminded him a lot of the 2015-16 flip, where in 15 they had a great offense. Mm-hmm. They were the best offense in the league in a, in a year where offense was down. So having a great offense was even more mm-hmm. valuable. And they had good enough pitching. You know, they traded for David Price. That was a huge story. The following year, they brought back much of the same team. And their offense sort of started to tumble. And their strength became their pitching. And guess what? They had the same result in the playoffs. They lost in the championship series. And sure, some of that is outside of your control. But to me, looking at this Jays group, and they're headed for changes regardless Improving their pitching in signing Kevin Gosman, in trading for Barrios and giving him an extension, in making a bet on Kikuchi, was meant to reinforce your strength. Or to support, I guess I should say, to support your strength, to complement your strength, which was to have the most powerful offense in the league, or at least one of the most powerful offenses in the league. And they've been average at home runs this year. It's not, hey, they're not the best anymore. They're the second or third best. No, they've dropped off that much. 
Nick Nazar and Israel Fair will be interesting uh, race to watch, uh, not just the Jays and Mariners. As you detailed, uh, a lot of emotion from it right now, just because the Mariners are having some success. But uh, just how the Jays climb back into this uh, again, first pitch uh, just after four o'clock today on Sportsnet 650 against those Baltimore Orioles. While we're talking about Seattle, uh, bad news today for the Seattle Seahawks: Jackson Smith and Jigba, first round pick, marquee wide receiver gets wrist surgery today some bad news but uh it does look like uh he could be in line to start the season but it breaks a bone in his wrist on the play where he almost scored a touchdown uh against uh uh, this weekend yeah Um, yeah against dallas um but he gets surgery done it's just one of those things that like you you want rookies because like the, the rookie schedule in the NFL is so crazy. Mm-hmm. You go through your college football season, you do bowl season, and it's right into combine prep, yeah. basically. And you go from combine prep to uh, rookie camp, to yeah. OTAs, to mini camp, to training camp. You don't really get a break. Well, it's all just you go from combine prep to draft. To yes. All of a sudden, you are, you live this place. No, you're, yeah. dra- you're, you're living in Seattle Cross now. Country, That's yeah. where you're going. You throw that in there. It's nonstop. And, and the worst thing you want is – Road bumps in the start in, in in a rookie season, and especially at the start of it. And this is a player. It, it's not just that I think he's a good player. It's that I think he landed in the perfect spot that accentuates his skill set. An offense that's not tailored for him, but if they want to feature him, his ability slides in perfectly to him. And through years down the road, you will see him grow in this offense. But right now. I think there's a perfect spot for him to be a safe, reliable, consistent option in this passing game. But this is just like a thing you don't want to see for rookies is now surgery. Does this impact the start of your season? Maybe he misses week one for the Seattle Seahawks. And that's a not an alarm, but certainly a thing that you kind of start with a frown, basically. Yeah, you start behind the eight yeah. ball a bit and. He's not the first rookie offensive player to come in with some expectations, yep. but I think he's right at the top of the list because of what you laid out. There's a fit there offensively. Yep. If they choose to spotlight that, if they choose to exploit that, those matchups in the slot against the a nickel corner, that there there is excitement beyond Seattle about that. Mm-hmm. This could be something that changes their offense. And the early returns were quite positive. He like people, wasn't even dropping passes. People were getting yeah. very excited about that. And then, yeah, you ask yourself a question, especially I think the rookie point is a good one. It's not a veteran player coming back to a league that they're accustomed to, yeah. to a role that they're accustomed to. It's a rookie player who's now dealing with the ideas that maybe he's still ready for the, the start of the season and in early September. But this is still somewhat of a hurdle. He's getting surgery done. He's not going to feel the same that he did heading into that Seahawks game, the preseason game on Saturday. And he's coming back to a new league for the first time to this role. There, there's there's going to be some eyeballs. Let's, you know, the Seahawks historically, uh, I think most – this is one of those things like with uh, the bullpens or runners yeah. in scoring position where fans feel like their team is always aggrieved. I think the Seahawks fans always feel like the injury prognosis is like 
he's not going to be ready for week one. Sure. Just on the history of like, oh, this guy's ready to go. Yeah. And it's like, oh, no, he's not. He's not playing. He's out for the season. I'm not saying that that's going to be the case here, but I'm tempering expectations. Let's say he misses the first game, the first couple of games, and the offense doesn't look good. All of a sudden, storylines. Yeah. Hey, you got you to gotta change the offense. That's what you were brought to do. And you lose that run-up period that, that he would have had here. Uh, not even, you know, the preseason, whatever, but just being healthy going into the first game of the season. Now, one benefit, they're not expected to be playing a high-level defense in the first couple of weeks. The Rams and the Lions are the first two opponents they face, but we'll see uh, how he grows into the season. And we will see where the Seahawks, if they land in the power rankings of the top 10, will do Bix best on the other side, Sportsnet 650. It's the People's Show. More on the way here on Sportsnet 650.